Good morning, everyone. We are moving through and almost done our series through the book of Revelation. This morning we're in Revelation 19. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you wanna pause, grab one, we're just gonna be looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 19, because chapter 19 is packed and I really can't do an adequate job trying to cover all of the ground on one Sunday. So we're gonna look at the first 10 verses today and then the rest of the chapter next week. So Revelation 19 verses one to 10, I'm gonna be reading from the Christian Standard Bible version. After this, I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. A voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and the ones who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet and I worshiped him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I believe the most beneficial way to read Revelation is as a guide to discipleship here and now. And that's because I'm really convinced Revelation shows us patterns of spiritual warfare that Christians across time are going to be called to participate in. And through its imagery and its symbols, it reveals that Jesus reigns over all of our challenges. Jesus reigns over all of the catastrophes that might befall us. And that Jesus will bring us through to victory and eternal life if we cling to him. And so the book of Revelation is not designed, in my opinion, to be a book that is, propels us into endless speculation around the exact nature of the prophecies nor is it designed to get us discouraged and bogged down with end times fear-mongering. It's intended to show us that Jesus rules and reigns right now and call us in response to that truth to live with faith and courage under his authority and under his leadership. Now, in the previous two chapters, we've just watched John receive a really striking, shocking vision of judgment against Babylon the Great. And Babylon the Great, within the broader biblical story, serves as a symbol 
for political powers that persecute the church or ideological forces bent on seducing people into a worldview that is centered on the self. Me first, hyper excess. Remember last week we talked about power excess, greed, greed that's exploitative and is just a lustful consumption of sensuality and power, even if it means, and often when it means, destroying the lives of other people. In the first century, Christian readers would have said, hey, that, that, this is Rome, this is Roman culture. But I believe that just like an archetypal villain that undergoes different manifestations across time and culture, think of my um, comparison to the arch-villain Joker, right? There's one Joker character, but he's been played by many actors over the decades. And in the same way, Babylon the Great is a type. It's a symbolic type representing any society that is built upon values that oppose the kingdom of God. That instead of moving in a Christ-like, caring, loving, peaceable direction, move in an antichrist direction. So in these 10 verses, um, there's sort of something particularly uh, contained happening in the first five, five verses and then the next five verses. So let's look at the first five verses quickly. This is a celebration from heaven of Babylon's final defeat. And in verse one, you've got a great multitude in heaven praising God because God has judged the prostitute and specifically he's judged the prostitute for the injustice of the martyrdom of those who have kept the testimony of Jesus even at the cost of their lives. And these outbursts of, of praise in verse two, they rest upon the fact that God is celebrated as both true and just. That his actions are true because they're valid. His actions are just because they're fair. No one in heaven is looking at this scene of God's judgment against Babylon the Great and saying, ooh, you know what, some, some of these other people around me are celebrating, but from my vantage point, oh, this doesn't really seem fair. This seems like an overreaction. This seems that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. I don't know how I feel about this. No, it's full-throated praise, giving glory to God. Because when we see God's judgment happen and the final judgment happen, that will be our response too. The earth, the judge of the earth will do, will do right and his actions are both true and just. And they're celebrating that God won't permit evil to metastasize forever. There is going to come a day when evil institutions, evil ideas, evil intentions, evil manifestations aren't just gonna be quieted for a season or a time, they're going to be ended. In verse three, we read that her smoke ascends forever and ever, or the destruction that awaits Babylon, um, kind of the aftermath is this ever-ascending smoke. Now, we in BC have the smoke from wildfires, but this is the smoke that is meant to uh, draw to mind a, a, a ruinous battlefield where a building in a city has been completely razed to the ground and the dust and the smoke rise up. And it calls to mind, at least for John's readers, uh, first century Christians reading this, an oracle from Isaiah, in Isaiah 34.10, where the kingdom of Edom is promised that its smoke will go up forever and ever, that it will be des desolate from generation to generation, and that no one will pass through that kingdom again. 
So in verse three, we're seeing it in very loaded, symbolic terms, God underlining three times, evil has a day of reckoning that's coming. And when God decides to fully and decisively deal with evil, that's gonna be it. Now for some people, this picture of heaven rejoicing over God's condemnation and judgment and destruction might leave us feeling a little bit uncomfortable and it might sort of, the question that we're maybe sort of orbiting around is, is rejoicing or in celebrating God's judgment against other people, is that kind of evil? One commentator said, it could appear to some that rejoicing over judgment is something that's less than a Christian response. But he said, should the destruction of a mighty city and its effect upon all who do business with it be the case of universal rejoicing? The answer is that it is not the actual suffering of those who are punished that brings rejoicing on the part of the redeemed, but the fact that God has vindicated his cause in the world. Nothing less than the character of God is at stake. In other words, what's being celebrated in heaven and what we should celebrate when we see God's judgment come to bear in the world where evil is stopped, sometimes even in a shocking and violent way from our vantage point, is that God is not allowing evil to have the final word. That God is putting an end to the corrupting, poisonous effects of sin and death. Now, let's turn to verses 6 to 10. And the scene shifts to a bride and a wedding and a wedding banquet. And maybe I would invite you to call to mind the most beautiful wedding you've ever attended and think about what made that wedding so special. What made that wedding so noteworthy? Weddings are a significant transition. Even if you're someone who doesn't particularly have a deep theology or even regard for marriage, when you move into and through the process of getting married, man, it, it does change you. You realize there's something going on here than simply just a formality. You're moving into a transition that marks a movement away from an old kind of life, a very particular kind of life, to a very new kind of life. And that's what we're seeing here in these next five verses. Reality is shifting from one age into a new age, from one way of life into a new way of life, because the kingdom of God is being fully established. And the parody of the prostitute and the beast, right, with her signaling of wealth with her gaudy jewelry and her uh, sort of anti-communion cup, beautiful on the outside, it's golden, but on the inside it's full of filth and abomination, that that parody is being replaced with the real thing, the bride of Christ. The bride is being revealed and the bride is taking her rightful place. In verses six to seven, there's a celebration that the now not yet kingdom of God is being fully established. See, right now, uh, we're, we're kind of, as the church, we are in a kind of engagement period. We have been betrothed to our love. He has set a deposit in our hearts, his spirit, and while we're in Christ spiritually, we're not with Christ physically. We don't see him and interact with him face to face. 
And so there's the sense in which we are loved and held by him, and yet it's not in a full sense. And he's at work in our lives, but not in a complete sense, and he is redeeming and saving us, but he hasn't capital R redeemed and capital S saved us and glorified us in the ultimate sense yet. There's a now and not yet. The kingdom of God is now, but it hasn't fully come. And in verses 6 to 7, we're seeing it fully come. We're moving past the engagement phase and a wedding where Christ and his bride, his church, are going to enter into marriage for eternity. And as the kingdom of God gets fully established, this picture of a wedding feast in which the lamb and his bride celebrate their union is foregrounded. And and the metaphor of marriage as expressing the relationship between God and people, it has its roots in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. Uh, Hosea 2.19, God says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. And the same symbolism runs through the New Testament. Probably most notably, Paul portrays the relationship of Christ and his church in terms of the intimacy of marriage. He says in Ephesians 5 that in the uh, dynamic sexual union of marriage, we catch a glimpse, a picture of Christ's love for his church. That marriage is meant to be a signpost, a signal that points to a deeper reality of the union that's coming between heaven and earth. Notice in verse 8 that in contrast to the prostitute's gaudy display of wealth through her gold and jewels and pearls, the bride is adorned in fine linen, bright and clean. And it's a picture of simplicity and purity. And it's important because it actually shows us what the bridegroom, what God considers beautiful. Right? Man looks at the outward appearance. We can very easily, as humans, um, value these signals of wealth and prosperity. But God looks at character. God looks at the heart. And this verse tells us, tells us that the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. They are clothed with acts, big and small, individual and corporate, that are righteous, that are right and true and give glory to God. That's what pleases God. Now, there's a wrong way to read this. And the wrong way to read this text would be to infer that what it's saying is, oh, the people who make it to heaven or the people who get to enjoy eternity with the lamb are those who are full of righteous deeds. So it's kind of a salvation by works that we uh, earn or merit our way into heaven. But that is not what is being communicated here. First of all, that doesn't make any sense in the broader um, trajectory of the scriptural message and certainly the gospel's message. Because at the heart of the gospel is that God saves us um, not based on what we've done, but but based on what Christ has done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, you've been saved by grace through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not work, so you can't boast. So what are we seeing here? What, is it, what are we supposed to infer 
that the bride of Christ is clothed with these righteous acts? Well, I think what it infers is that when we enter into that betrothal stage, when, when we yield our heart to Jesus, what should follow is a life that, of course, may not be perfect. We're going to make lots of mistakes and missteps, but a life that increasingly is conformed to not only the character of Christ, but conformed to his heart, conformed to what matters to him, and a life that is increasingly beautiful in his eyes. And that means a life that is filled with righteous deeds. Again, those might be very small, they could be very big, they could be um, known to many, they could be known to God alone. But a transformed life is the proper response to the call of a heaven to the to the call of the heavenly bridegroom. And then in verse 10, John is so overwhelmed, he he turns and he begins to worship the angel, and the angel's like, Hold up, nope, I am just a servant like you. Right, and this angel's mighty, probably uh, looks and sound, everything is, it, you know, he's this overwhelming supernatural entity. But the angel just redirects John away from any kind of worship or adoration or idolization. Worship God alone, right? I mean, there's a whole message there on the need to go to God directly. We don't pray to angels. We don't try and contact angels, go through angels to get to God. None of those things are necessary. We can go right to God because of what Jesus has done. And we're, I hope we all realize we're called to not worship or idolize anything else in our lives except for God. Here's where revelation can become really helpful when we read it through the lens of discipleship. Because there's something in every chapter that should land with us right here and now. We don't have to wait for some future event, nor do we have to look back in history and try and figure out when it happened. It's real for us right now. And this morning I'd point you to verse seven where it says, his bride has prepared herself. That's the call of this chapter to me, and I think to you, is make yourself ready. Prepare yourself. This day is coming. Are you preparing for it? Imagine if you met a bride who was getting married in like a week. And when you said, oh, you must be overwhelmed with preparations. They said, oh, um, uh, I, yeah, I guess I should be. I just haven't really given it much thought. That would seem so strange to you. You would question the devotion of the bride and what kind of marriage this is going to be and what kind of disaster this wedding day and marriage is likely going to be maybe. And yet we have a lot of Christians who are waiting for Jesus to return but not necessarily preparing themselves. So how do we do that? Well, number one, we have to make Jesus our bridegroom. Is Jesus our bridegroom? Are we saved? Are you saved by his grace and sealed with his spirit? See, when you turn your will and your life over to Jesus, that's what's happening. You're entering into a covenant relationship, kind of like a marriage. It's more like a spiritual betrothal, though. You're saying, I need your love. I need your grace. I want those things in my life. I yield myself to you. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. I want you to be the leader in my life. I want you to save me from the power of sin and death. And now, 
that I'm a Christian and I've made that commitment, I begin learning every day, bit by bit, little by little, refinement by refinement, how to love and serve God and others during this betrothal period when I'm separated from my love physically, but I'm connected to him by his spirit. And so even though we're apart while I'm waiting for this heavenly banquet, I'm preparing. I'm clothing myself with righteous acts. And that's important to remember because some people think, well, yeah, I'm just kind of waiting, just kind of do life and Jesus will come back. And it's like, no, that's, that's not what it means to prepare. Some people say, yeah, and Jesus is coming back. I've given him my life and, uh, you know, pretty much I, I just try and stay out of trouble, try and avoid like the big, big sins, like the big baddies and um, yeah, looking forward to heaven. It's like, no, that's not, that's not what it means to prepare for that wedding day. And nor does it mean, and I think this is particularly important to highlight in the book of Revelation, nor does it mean to obsess over when the bridegroom is going to return and try and figure it out and try and figure out all of the details surrounding his return. No. We're called to here and now, right now, make ourselves ready by pursuing a focused, passionate, devoted walk with Christ. And so what we do is we get up every day and we yield our day to God and we say, as best as I understand how today, God, will you help me to move through my day in a focused, passionate, devoted way, serving you, serving other peoples, doing righteous acts, the ones that are simple and pure. Maybe no one's ever going to see them. Maybe no one's ever going to celebrate them. But I know you're going to see them, Jesus, and I want them to be pleasing to you. I want to display your love. I want to display your beauty. I want to display your goodness to other people. And that call comes right out of the New Testament. Romans 13, when Paul is writing to an uh, early Christian community in Rome, he says, listen, you know the time. It's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. He's like, guys, like things are in the works. A wedding is coming down the pipe. This is not the time to just sort of um, shift into a cruise control mode of life. Be awake. Let's get going. He says, now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And he's talking about that ultimate salvation, deliverance from this age of sin and death when Christ returns. He says, it doesn't matter whether you just became a Christian yesterday or 10 years ago. Jesus coming back is closer today than it was back then. So he says, the night is nearly over. The day is near. So discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity or promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's saying, when you're engaged, when you're getting ready and preparing for the wedding day, your thoughts shouldn't be consumed with well, what about me? What do I want to do? Uh, how do I maximize my pleasure in this moment? You're thinking about, how do I prepare for this day? How do I prepare to please the one that I'm marrying? How do I build into these next few weeks and months so that that day and that marriage is glorious? And then in Colossians 3, he says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, 
And pause there, because what you have to underline is God's chosen ones, meaning he's not going to say, hey guys, do these things and maybe you'll get saved, or do these things and maybe you'll make it into heaven. He says, you've already been sealed and chosen in Christ. If you've yielded to Jesus, you are saved, you are adopted into the family of God. Now, as adoptees who are holy and dearly loved, he says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. He says, those are, the thing, those are the clothes you need to begin to wear to prepare for the return of Jesus and the wedding banquet. He says, bear with one another, forgive one another. If anyone has any grievance against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. And so to me, in, in these first 10 verses of chapter 19, there's a very pragmatic and demanding but inspiring challenge and that is to get ready for the wedding the wedding supper of the lamb and we do that by putting on the character of jesus and by looking for ways proactively to do good and to display god's love and light in the world to those around us and to shun evil we get ready for the wedding by putting on the character of jesus doing good and shunning evil So what are we wearing as we gather this morning? What are you wearing spiritually? What, what have you clothed yourselves in? Deeds of darkness? Acts of self-interest and self-promotion? Behaviors that reveal self-serving excess, greed, overconsumption? Or have we put on Christ? Are we seeking every day to embrace our circumstances, challenging situations and processes and yielding them all to Jesus and saying, God, this is rough, this is difficult, this is challenging, but I want your character to be formed in me. I want to become more like Jesus. Will you teach me how to walk in faithfulness to you? Are we striving to present ourselves as beautiful in Jesus' eyes even if it means looking ugly in the eyes of the world. The bridegroom is coming. And so let's turn from whatever habits and patterns are connected to Babylon the prostitute and live into the vision and calling we have as the bride of Christ, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Jesus, would you do a work in our hearts today? Would you help us to get ready? Would you help us to make ourselves ready? Would you teach us what it means to cooperate with your spirit so that we are clothed in your righteousness and in, your, and in deeds that please you? Open our eyes to the opportunities to love you and love other people around us and to do so with depth and with wisdom um, for your namesake and for your glory. Amen.